Ryan Peterson. He's an associate professor of theology at Biola in Southern California who deeply cares about his students and their spiritual formation. His main area of interest has been in the area of theological anthropology, which means his career has been about exploring what it means to be human, our unique characteristics, virtues and vices, and what the Christian tradition has to say about who we are and what we're called to be. And also what aspects of us are changeable and changing over time and which aspects are more static? And might there be a third category of something in between? Ryan examines these questions from a theological perspective and in recent years has been drawing on the findings of psychological science to inform his answers. We start out with an exploration of the salient topics in theological anthropology and then we end up discussing the problem of how to communicate with one another about our vastly different experiences of life. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name's Sari Martin Concepcion. I'm the Director of Communication at Blueprint 1543. You can find more information and resources like these at blueprint1543.org. I'm talking to Ryan Peterson, and you teach at Biola at Talbot Seminary, correct? Yeah, that's right. And uh, why don't you just tell, say something about yourself, however you want that to, to go. What do you consider sort of, what do you do? What are your interests? What's your vocation? However you want to define that for yourself. Yeah, so uh, I teach at Talbot, like you said, and primarily in the graduate programs for people training for ministry or into uh, academic work, obviously. So I teach primarily in the theology course. So we have a three course theology sequence and I teach like most often the, the second uh, course in that core. And that course covers uh, theological anthropology, the doctrine of sin and Christology. And it turns out that you know, my own research interests have been in theological anthropology. That's that's what I've been researching and writing, and then uh, ways that I've been interested in the intersection of theology and psychology uh, have come from my interest in uh, theological anthropology, and then connecting that up with what's going on in the study of humanity outside of theology as well. And so that's at least the the primary way that I've gotten connected to the theopsych stuff. I think there's some really fruitful work to be done too in the area of Christology, because obviously uh, Jesus's psychology, since he's a divine person with a human nature, you know, asks or kind of reframes a number of the psychological questions along certain lines that we might end up talking about a little bit later as well. And so I think that's interesting. That's a way that this work connects with my professional job. In terms of my vocation, I mean, really what I'm interested in is both pursuing myself and then nurturing in others a growing integration of the knowledge of God, the love of God, and then and then um, walking with God. So, so this kind of like that movement of knowing and loving that motivates then a certain kind of life 
is ultimately what I'm committed to vocationally and in, in nurturing that in my students. And again, in order to do that well, I, I want to know how human formation takes place. What does human development look like, both at the uh, you know in the in the theological account, but then also the way that that interfaces with um, what we're discovering empirically through psychological science as well as um, social science and a number of other things like that. Yeah, that's really good. So, can we talk about theological anthropology a little bit, like? If someone's sort of new to that term, um, that phrase, what? how would you explain that to someone in an elevator? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So theological anthropology has, I mean, um, the big questions, I guess, that, that we're kind of wrestling with in that doctrine, it has to do with human nature. Also, human, so, so like, what is a person and why? are humans the way that we are and these kind of things, which, which again has such an interesting intersection with uh, scientific accounts, let's say uh, even in terms of human biology, like why does it take the form that it does and how does that relate to other creatures and so on or not, you know, in what ways are humans unique? So, so one of the questions there uh, in theological anthropology as well is like what differentiates humans from other creatures? I've Research I've focused on the doctrine of the image of God, uh, that humans are made in the image of God, and therefore um, we are distinguished from all the other creatures of the earth by this particular kind of relation that we have to God and uh, also a certain kind of vocation um, that we have in living human life, like what we're called to in relationship to God. Um, I've also, um, I guess that connects to teleology as well. Like where are we headed? Where, where are we going? What are we meant for? What are we created for? And so, uh, theological anthropology is basically an effort to answer that question. Like what is the human creature? And then what are the like theological answers that understanding of humanity that helps us to say, the kind of thing that we are, why that's similar to so much of the rest of creation, but also why we're different from other things in creation, and to refer the answers to all of those questions to God directly. So that's why it's theological anthropology. So we're not, I mean, those same questions can be answered along a number of lines. Uh, so we might look into biological answers, but a theological answer is, is trying to say, how does our relationship to God specifically reframe the way we answer all of those questions? That's, that's really helpful. Off the top of your head, do you have that question? These big questions can sound very theoretical and philosophical, but what sort of practical implications does studying theological mm -hmm. anthropology and what it means to be a human being and what is, you know, what are we for? What are we, what's our purpose what sort of practical implications do those have or, or, um, or pastoral implications or however you want yeah, to Yeah, that? yeah, great question. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, these are, the implications are really, truly massive. If you look, for example, if we think about the quality of human persons, the dignity of human persons, uh, especially as we've obviously been, 
you know, facing a number of major cultural questions related to this in terms of social justice and matters along those lines. I think that the theological anthropology and a doctrine of the image of God is just absolutely massive for um, undergirding an account of human equality and -hmm. dignity. So that's one area. I think um, in a theology of disability as well, uh, there's been a, a lot of work along these same lines to show the equality and dignity of all persons, um, not based on ability, but based on uh, the fact of their creational uh, existence before God as um, someone known by God and loved by God and not rooted in their performance, let's say. So I think that outside of, you know, a theological account, I suppose there's sort of biological arguments that can be made for kind of the similarity of all humans. You know, we all have uh, a similar biology and so on, but performance seems to take a very high, like, role in terms of assessing human value uh, outside of this more transcendent account, which says, no, that actually it's it's God that gives each one of us value. And uh, it's his love for us that ends up calling us to recognize the importance of other people independent of their personal performance and so on. So I, th- I think that's one of the major mm-hmm. things that has massive practical ramifications. Sure. Um, but I also think it has huge implications along trajectories, let's say, of uh, human development in this sense just to recognize this idea that human development is aimed at something, right? And so like, and and that ultimately what it's aimed at has to do with what God wants for us and that's fellowship with him. And then also a kind of human flourishing given God's priorities, not just sort of worldly priorities. And so I think that transforms even how we would you know what we what we would think, let's say, is um, a successful, healthy, and flourishing human life versus, let's say, you know what's pathological behavior that changes uh, the account of of the kind of development we're aiming at and what we're hoping for, what we want for others, and the kind of flourishing we want in their lives, and all that is shaped very much by this theological account. So I think it has huge practical ramifications on the front end in terms mm-hmm. of like the dignity of all people, but then also in sort of uh, shaping and directing human development and spiritual formation as well. Yeah. Can we skip back to, you mentioned the, the doctrine of Imago Dei or the image of God. There's a lot of diversity in that area of study. Can you sort of flesh out your perspective on what it means to be made in the image of God? Yes, uh, I can. And you're right, there is a lot of diversity. Through church history, there's been many ways of giving an account of, of what it means to be human. Now, in my view, those are all deep anthropological insight. So we were talking about theological anthropology and what it means to be human. And I think we have to talk about all of those things, like the human mind is, and its uniqueness is, is absolutely crucial. Our spiritual uh, nature, our relationality, as well as this, like I said, kingly dominion or stewardship, as you, you noted, 
is crucial there. But the image of God, I don't think, is any one of those things specifically. And actually, I think that it's it goes sort of the logic goes the other way around. It's not because we have a certain kind of mind that then we're in God's image, but it's actually that God first decided that he wanted an image of himself in the world. And then humanity in its fullness is the result of that decision. Mm-hmm. So that the way that I've tried to talk about that then is, is kind of a creaturely identity. So it's a kind of thing that we are in creation as representatives of God meant again to know him and love him and therefore then to express his character in the world through our minds and souls and relationships and vocations that all of that gets kind of captured up as that follows from the this creaturely identity that we all share as human beings so all those different views not not to cut you off but what i'm hearing is kind of like all those different views don't have to be mutually exclusive it's part of a portfolio, if you will, of uh, of characteristics that image God that flow from our our status as creatures, as human creatures. Something yeah, like that. that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think we have a we have this status as human creatures and it's aimed at us representing God in the world. Now, interestingly, and I'll just mention this in terms of, again, because of my developmental interests in, in the intersection of theology and psychology, is I think that that we have these things, like a mind or whatever, but, but also what God's interested in is how that is formed and shaped by, you know, in, in certain kind of virtue that reflects God's character. So this gets into huge questions about, um, you know, virtue formation, which psychologists have spent quite a bit of time working on. And also then that that developmental feature that these aren't properties that are undirected, but actually they're properties that humans have for the sake of representing God in these various domains in relationships in the world through their vocations in various ways and things like that. Okay. This project you're doing with who you got? It's you Scott, and Scott Juan Harrower. Frank and Scott uh, Harrower, yeah. right? You guys are dynamic trio. Can you talk about what the sort of genesis of that project was and what questions were driving that project? This was, I, I think, one of the really successful features of the Theopsych seminar that I participated in. But it really, what we found was that we had this common interest in what I might call, I guess, uh, you know, personalism, which is this sense that underneath all the phenomena of human experience is a person and that that actually, that person actually has an ontological existence. So we're, so the person isn't reducible merely to the phenomena, but that there's a person underlying that, that, that right. sort of has this, has these. Mm-hmm. This is a philosophical problem question, right? Is like, what is a person in terms of, since everything about me is changing over time, there's nothing the same about my body, my mind in lots of ways, maybe that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that person doesn't exist anymore. So what is the static quality that still makes me me? Is that what you're talking about or is there something yeah, else? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the one of the ways of uh, framing that question is trying to figure out 
what about you remains the same in right. in the face of all of this radical change. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And actually, because I chose this word identity to try to talk about the creaturely identity that we share as human beings. And then I started reading, you know, psychological literature and identity where everything's constantly in flux and, and utterly fluid and plastic and, or, you know, whatever term you want to use for that. Mm-hmm. That got me interested in, okay, how do these, so, sort of where is there an intersection between stability, the stability of a human person and that person's malleability or, you know, the, the plasticity in that person. So have you, so you're really into the Enneagram now? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can never change. <laughs> boom. I'm a chew for life. Um, <laughs> chewing three. Um, no, Actually, I've never done that thing. You know, I probably really? need to just so I can be a part of the conversation. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know a ton. I'm not a psychologist and I don't know a ton about personality psychology, but so that's interesting to locate some of that, that continuity, personal continuity within personality psychology, which, yeah, it does connect with some issues, some, some things you were talking about in this, this chapter you sent me where, mm-hmm. okay, we're all made in the image of God and we're all supposed to try to be Christ-like. But does that mean we all end up looking like the same cookie cutter? Well, no, right? It's <laughs> there's something about our individuality that's that's important. But maybe before we dive into that, we should talk about the the basis of that chapter a little bit. Like you, did you invent these categories or are these? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the they are kind of. There's constructed identities, which that's sort of understood well you can explain it but <laughs> there's, oh, there's yeah, constructed yeah. identities and then something you're calling created identities right yeah maybe you could flesh that out a little bit. so yeah with with created identities what i'm trying to talk about are the stable features of basically god's action in the world in creating establishing and forming human life and therefore it has to do with creation and even redemptional categories. So, so in that case, not only does God create us, but he's actually taking us somewhere, both as, you know, scripture has this interplay all the time between humanity as a whole and individual humans. And, and we're kind of, we're a part of this much larger narrative than ourselves. And so it's not like our story is the, the whole story. Our story is embedded in a much larger story about God's plans for humanity. So we have these, these, yeah, I've called them creational identities or created identities in the sense that God's the one who establishes them and brings us into those realities. And then the constructed identities are what I was picking up from social psychology and also other social sciences to basically say that we're always, again, yeah, we are always changing all the time in terms of our understanding, our emotional, you know, uh, condition, our bodies. So like in every area of life, you're constantly in flux, you know, you're, you're constantly right. changing and, and developing. And right. that you're that single, really makes, then you're married, you're, uh, yeah, that's you're right. childless, you're a father, you're young, and then you're old, you're, <laughs> 
uneducated and then you're college educated. All these are social categories, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That even changes in different rooms, right? Like you could be a student and a teacher at the same time, depending on roles. Like these are these are things that are that are always changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so we're like all of that changeability is is kind of a massive thing, but it's anchored by this work of God. And what I tried to pick up there is that in theology, sometimes sort of the the pushback against the recognition of that kind of changeability has been to say, no, 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 like you have this, you know, kind of a personality essentialism or something like that, that kind of makes you what you are. God made you exactly like that. And you're, you know, and and there's kind Mm -hmm. of a resistance to that changeability from some Mm -hmm. theological circles. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to do is say, no, that actually within a good theological anthropology, there are areas of these created identities, which are unchanging or much larger than us, of which we're a part and we're just participants in something that exceeds us. And yet, because even from my perspective, you know, Adam and Eve were created, uh, this is to take an Irenaean line, but Adam and Eve were, you know, created to develop and change and mature, you know, and grow. And so in that case, they were, you know, perfect in the sense of being innocent, uh, but but not perfect in the sense of being fully mature. And so... This is just part of human nature, that, that change, development, growth, that's a good thing. And that even then the, the kind of self-characterization and self-interpretation that all of us are doing all the time is, a, is, is part of um, a good theological anthropology. So we don't need to resist those, those discoveries and sort of the theories that are going along with that, but, but we do need to situate them inside of these other theological commitments. Right. So it's sort of like Lord of the Rings, like one ring to rule them all. And (laughs) (laughs) so we can't get away from having all these socially constructed identities. They're just part of our existence. And and Jesus had navigated the world in some of those, right? But you're saying when we get into trouble is when we let those sort of take precedent, precedent over the one ring that is supposed to rule them all, which is our (laughs) creaturely identity, which is a theological identity that is the most true thing about us, which is the meta-narrative of scripture that scripture presents, the story of redemption and being beloved by God. And so the, the primary identity, the ruling identity should be my role in this, in the meta narrative of of the redemptive narrative that is presented in scripture. Am I understanding you correctly or add any corrective to that? Yeah. Oh no, that, yeah, I think that's exactly right. The the thing that I have been interested in though, and regularly get this question from students as we're talking about it and so on is, well, what about people who don't, who have no idea of this, this larger, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, theological reality, like they have no place mm-hmm. for that. And so what I've had, the way I've been trying to address that is that, the, you know, if we think about those other categories that we talked about before in terms of human ontology, that were bodies and souls and in relation with God, with other humans in the world, and then 
in certain vocations as well in worshiping God, you know, building fellowship with other humans and then uh, having stewardship over the earth in some respect that everyone is doing those things, whether they're Christians or not, they're sort of self-evaluating their own bodies, their own personage or whatever, you know, like um, they're trying to make sense of the relationships that they're in. Um, and that even includes their relationship with God, even if they don't articulate it along Christian lines. And then, you know, their vocation and what they're called to in terms of action in the world, like all of that is shared by Christians and non-Christians. And that's where the constructed identity identity formation is happening. So we're all kind of in that journey together, whether or not you recognize that that journey is happening inside of Mm -hmm. this larger story that's conditioning that. And so you're, you're much better off, I would say, you know, understanding what God has for us because um, that then gives direction and aim to these, to this process. But we're all in that same process, like you said, of, of self-interpretation in relation to others and, and for certain ends. Right. So that kind of connects to what we we started talking about earlier on, right? Where the theological anthropology that sort of encapsulates or connects with what you're talking about, created identities, it undergirds our ethics in how we treat each other when we're navigating these constructed identities. It undergirds our ethics and justice and equality and human dignity and how we we treat each other because sort of humans are naturally tribalistic and are othering one another and wanting to create hierarchies and unhealthy, you know, toxic power dynamics and and whatnot. So having some of this theology reinforced sort of helps spread the love and the goodness of God as we navigate those different dynamics. Is that yeah, that's right. And then and then I think there's this other category, you know, like, so, you know, at least this is the way I'm currently conceptualizing it and the project that I'm working on right now. But you've got these persons who have personalities, which on a psychological account are fairly stable sort of uh, ways of encountering the world, let's say. And then you've got the self-interpretation piece that is this very fluid and plastic thing. But in between those the personality and then the identity construction is character. Like this is this is where we have virtue and vice or the, these habits of the heart and mind, um, which aren't identified entirely with your personality. And they're, but they're more, the, uh-huh. yeah, maybe they're more like jello or something, you know, it's like, it's like they wiggle a little bit, but they're, they're mostly <laughs> fixed in a certain shape. And, um, and so the, the um, development of virtue and vice, I think, plays a huge role here, especially then as we act as representatives of God. That's right. So, so yeah. the more we get to know God and then are conformed to his character in Christ, right, and have the mind of Christ, like it talks about um, in Scripture, and then put on the character of Christ, that actually... Uh, become sort of again something that shapes our self-interpretation, but also then our our actions in the world in profound ways. So I don't think it's even 
a minor sort of part of the of that journey, but I think that the development of character is actually crucial here. So if those other things like who we are as a person, the kind of personality that we have, which isn't something over which we have control, you know, as a parent having four kids and you as a parent probably notice this as well, like your kid is born with a personality. Yeah. Um, when, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I think... Which is one of the delights of parenthood is like trying to learn your child, right? It's yeah. not that you're, you don't, you don't sort of make your child who they are as a person or their personality. Yeah. They are who they are and you're they learning. They already come with some stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> but you are shaping their character and then mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the kind of um, virtues and vices that develop, the um, loves that they have. Mm their knowledge as well. So all of that kind of stuff is something you're shaping and all of that ultimately then will shape how they interpret themselves in the world later on. But like that character piece, I think is really crucial. That's something over which we do have, you know, it's a changeable feature of humanity, but it provides a kind of life stability that you live from. So I I think that that's where that developmental psychology to me becomes really interesting and why all the, the, um, Research on virtue and vice in recent psychology, I think, has been very important. Yeah. What have you, in the positive psych realm, yeah, what uh, what are you starting to uncover? Yeah, well, I've looked at, spent some time working on humility and, mm-hmm. you know, because there's been a few massive projects uh, working on, you know, accounts of humility there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been also tracking a little bit with the large grant that um, Pete Hill has here currently working on gratitude. Exactly. So those have been big things here at Biola. For sure. Because Pete's been leading it up as well as there was a year on humility at the Center for Christian Thought here as well. And so because those have been kind of in my environment, I've been tracking with some of the research on that. But it's... Those are big ones. Yeah. 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 Those are... Those are big ones that are underway. Yeah, and they seem like they have a, um, there's sort of a downstream effect from both of those things with developing humility and gratitude. There's sort of a downstream effect of flourishing and other sort of virtues maybe being That's fostered true. from out of that. Yeah. In the third Theopsych seminar, we had Bob Evans as a speaker, which actually I should probably share some of those links to you, some of those recordings. You can have a, you can have the benefits of all three seminars now through the power of digital technology. So <laughs> we had, I, and should, we had I Pam, should check that out. Yeah. We had oh, Pam, Pam King, King at our second too. seminar too. Oh, so, cool. So we have some really cool, cool talks from them, but another one, and I think you mentioned this in one of your survey answers that I sent out, but attachment theory is a big one. And that was at the seminar with some of Mary's stuff. And that is something that talk about kids has a big downstream effect too, right? On how, on our relationships. So the way our, our, when things are going well, our human attachments are strong from a young age and that ends up having a lifetime of benefits, right? Have you gotten into that a little bit? Yeah, I have a bit and I'm, I'm doing more with that now. I'll just mention really quickly that um, Todd Hall's book. So couple of colleagues of mine here, Todd and Liz Hall. Um, but Todd Hall's book is coming out later this year with IVP called Relational Spirituality. And he's doing a bunch of work in there on attachment theory and connecting that to 
um, relation <laughs> relationship with God. Yeah, yeah. So that that's coming just later in the spring. I think it comes out in May. But I was like, I need to see this now. So, <laughs> so I've I've been taking a you know a little bit of a look at that, and but I'm really excited for that to come out because I think it's doing really good and important work on this. But I found that really helpful, like you said, for parenting, even for self-diagnosis. It's like, oh man, I here here are some maybe uh, dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, attachment yeah. behaviors that I have. So, um, yeah, I think that has some very interesting dynamics, especially in terms of sort of shaping our own understanding of why we turn to God, when and how we do, whether it's because we're feeling like he's kind of absent, we're trying to hold on to him, or the other way that, you know, we think he's kind of over-scrutinizing us or this kind of thing. And so instead, there's a lot of ways we we project from our own attachment experiences among humans. We project that onto God rather than allowing the kinds of attachment to us, um, like we were talking about before, that God has already laid out for us and sort of teaches us in Scripture that, hey, this is this is the way that I'm related to you and I am attached to you in Christ in these ways that that actually can recondition our experience of human attachments and say, okay, we don't, we don't have to sort of grasp after God, like we do these other relationships, but we can rest in God. Like, you know, Jesus says his burden is light. Uh, that this isn't something we have to do a lot of work to hold on to, but God's coming to us in, in love and grace. And then that can then change and transform the way we relate to other people as well. Yeah, exactly. Like with gratitude and humility. So also grace, which I think there's going to be a project coming up yeah. in, on both the psychology and theology of grace in the next couple of years and some other things like that. Yeah, Pete did Integration Symposium at Fuller a few years ago, uh, and he spoke on grace, and it was really great. It was super, super interesting. I sat in on that one. Yeah. The resources there on that topic. Oh, that's really good. This is just kind of my personal question. Maybe it's just ever so slightly politically tinged, but... (laughs) Um, and feel free to answer however you like or whatever, feel free, whatever, whatever you actually think on this. But in terms of those constructed identities and especially with race, that has been a really salient issue over the last year. And it seems to me that sometimes the Christian community uses the idea that our identity should be grounded in our relationship to God as a way to be sort of dismissive to folks who are using categories of race to articulate an experience that, you know, their experience of navigating the world. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's true? And what do you think? And if if so, what, what do you think? What sort of issues are we dealing with there? You, you know, I know it's a big question, but... This is a great question. I love it. Um, because I think that you're, you've diagnosed a real problem, and that is that, that um, something that actually ought to anchor a validation of diverse experiences ends up being used to flatten them out and say, no, 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 you don't get to say things differently than what my experience says. And it's used to dismiss 
diversity rather than to actually acknowledge it and embrace it. So this is exactly where, you know, where I was motivated to work on this difference between created and constructed identities and to say both of these are important within a theological anthropology because all of us are interpreting our, like self-interpreting our own bodily experience and communal experience for what our bodies, like the significance of our bodies in our, in the specific communities that we find ourselves in. And so like uh, my wife grew up in Nigeria and as fourth generation missionaries, her family was there for about 90 years. Wow. But just, it's interesting how in that environment, what it means to be black is so radically different from what it means in Alabama or something like that. Totally. Totally. And if we as Christians aren't recognizing that the meaning of being black is very much shaped in a communal way, then we're just dismissing some like very clear social phenomena. And so what we need to do is recognize that no, what we, what we need to do from the doctrine of the image of God is to validate those human experiences and then seek to support and bless all people in the conditions they find themselves in for their flourishing. Like that's what it should motivate me to do is I study the image of God. And therefore I say, wow, this is, this is sort of the truth about what God has called me into and the kind of flourishing he wants for me. And that other person over there, who's not me, whatever situation they're in, that God wants that kind of flourishing for them, given the differences that they have from me and experience and all of these things. I think, I think, frankly, this is true of, of, you know, um, sexual difference as well. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, with, with male and female, there's just so much either flattening out of that experience to be like, no, this is what it is, you know, for just to be a human person and, and not really recognizing the, the richness of male and female experience. Or, of course, the, the differences between what we even want to say about that, like between men and between women and so on. And so all of that to say that there's a whole range of ways that diverse human experience needs to be acknowledged. And then sort of it's the church's job to figure out how to bless people, all the, the full range of diverse people there and overthrow, I think, a lot of the broader cultural efforts at either dampening those differences or seeing them as problematic rather than saying, no, actually what we need to do is to take advantage of those, right? That all these people are in the body of Christ and their differences are what strengthen the whole. That's what strengthens us. Yeah, um, exactly. I think there's some confusion with constructed identities being sort of... There's confusion where people think that's what's happening. We're taking these constructed identities and maybe sometimes that is what's happening, but we're like elevating them too much or something. But I think a lot of times that's not what hap- what's happening. What we're trying to highlight is a distinction in our experience of the world based on one of these, one or a few of these, of these named constructed identities. And it gets a little complicated because sometimes because sometimes someone else's lived experience is so different from your own that it seems like we're almost talking about, I don't know, like 
all truth being relative or something like, oh, how could you, how is that possible? Your experience of the world could be so different than mine. And sometimes when things get so complicated and require a lot of nuance, it can feel like confusion or chaos or a lack of absolute truth or something like that, which can be, I think, an unsettling experience for some, for some people. So I think maybe that the primary problem is maybe a listening problem, like or just a a, yeah. a need for just patient listening and understanding that the, <laughs> there is a huge diversity of lived experience in the world um, that can still fit in the the story of of what God's doing and God's the work of God's Spirit in the world and, and redemption and all of that. I, I would say too, one of the things that is I, I think very hard to to talk about in this because it's not maybe as like uh, politically acceptable <laughs> in the mm-hmm. world, depending on what circles you're talking about. Depending on the circles. But, but sure. that is that, you know, that people's experiences are so limited that oftentimes their own understanding of others is, is just so far uh, removed from actual reality. And so, like you said, it, that yeah. this really means that we have to listen carefully and also right. realize that there's going to be a long road for people to sort of change their presuppositions on a lot of these things. Stretch their imaginations. Stretch their imaginations, exactly. But oftentimes we think like one tweet should change everyone's mind. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, no, what we got to do is like actually have real relationships with people who are different from us and then realize that that's what's going to change our viewpoint. Yeah.